Welcome to a special edition of the Greater Possibilities podcast from Invesco, where we put concerns into context and opportunities into focus. I'm Brian Levitt, and today I will be handing the hosting duties to Justin Leverance, team leader and senior portfolio manager for the Emerging Markets Equity Team at Invesco. Justin had the unique opportunity to interview Joey Watt, the CEO of Yum China, which of course is the operator of the KFC and Pizza Hut chains in China. Justin and Joey talk about the spectacular rise of the Chinese consumer and the formulas for anticipating and meeting the needs of the Chinese customers. We will also gain insight into how China is emerging from the COVID challenges of the past eight years. So grab your eight-piece chicken meal and your stuffed crust pizza and sit back and enjoy the conversation. This is a real treat. Uh, this afternoon, I'm delighted to host uh, a good friend, Joey Watt, who's been the CEO of Yum China for approximately five years and has spent more, almost a decade with Yum China in various different capacities. Before that, I believe you were also CEO of Watson's in the United Kingdom. Yep. I thought we could divide this into four or five se sections. The first is talk a little bit about the contemporary consumer in China and so the okay. evolution of yeah. the consumer. The second was formulas for success, if there are any, in the consumer market across China. The third, uh, about competitive evolution and possibilities that still exist in terms of the restaurants industry across China. Mm -hmm. The fourth, I think we'd be remiss without touching upon the spectacular rise of technology in China and what that has meant for for businesses. All right. And the fifth, and I suspect most of the audience is probably most interested, is really about the context of China. So the first, ingredients uh, for success with contemporary Chinese consumer. So China has changed dramatically in the last 20 years. I think if you go back 20 years ago, the total economy was one and a half trillion dollars. Today, it's nearly 18 trillion dollars. Mm -hmm. And early this morning, I discovered that during this 20-year period, consumer disposable incomes across China have increased tenfold in 20 years. So right. there's been a lot of change. China now has a broadly more affluent population, a more urbanized population, a more connected population, and alongside this, a continental-sized economy. Uh, in addition, we've seen a profound shift in this past 10 years towards a more service-oriented consumer economy across mm. China. Yep. Actually, perhaps the first time in China's 5,000 years that we, we've got a really large consumer economy. So I guess the question, Joey, is um, what do you believe have been the most profound set of changes during this period of time? Let's, let's start with some number and then, and then we can hopefully see sees few things that might be interesting. Yum China right now we uh, we serve customers in eighteen hundred cities in China out of two thousand eight hundred cities. That's KFC. Pizza Hut is only in seven hundred cities in China. And even in my last whatever years here, what amazed me is the growth of these new cities. I mean the the number of new cities just keep growing, still growing. Um, so the 
the addressable market right now. The city in China is defined as sort of more than hundred thousand people, or what's yeah? The... I mean the the I mean the the highest you know Beijing Shanghai mm, I mean twenty you know, thirty million twenty thirty million, and then you go down to tier five tier six city. It could be a hundred thousand, could be fifty thousand in eastern part of China. But then, if you go to the poor province, like more inland province, the the number of population is bigger. Uh, so it's quite different depending on the regional. Uh, but we, as a company, we track these cities in terms of development because it would determine our short term and long term plan about how many cities will enter a year or next year, and then in the coming five years. So that is really amazing. And and secondly is, you know, the disposable income per capita is still growing. Um, and and that's exciting. Although in the last few years, um, the, this, the disposable income for customer for the consumption part, like for, for food or in general consumption, is not necessarily going up. It's actually become tighter for many reasons. One reason is uh, pandemic, but also very expensive housing price. So when consumer companies or quick service restaurant companies, um, the tier two, tier three, tier four cities, they are actually quite attractive. They're not too bad. Housing prices have been less dramatic. Correct, and people in those cities have more disposable income than 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 we thought. Um, so 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 these dynamics are uh, uh, exciting. And then the the lower tier city, tier five, tier six, they're, they're still growing, and and because it's such a big market, um, and we have to embrace the scale. Um, with such big market, there's still just so many opportunities because the white space is there. I mean, if you, if you're well, if you're in a consumer product uh, business, then you can reach these cities via online platform. But if you're in food business, then you still can con continue to build the stores in the lower tier cities. And, and, and the white space is still there. So that, that's exciting. So many of the clients of this podcast, when they think about Chinese multinationals, the poster child to them is the success of European luxury good companies, right? Mm -hmm. So the Cartier, Chanel's, mm -hmm. Hermes of the world, broad recognition that China has been an important factor. Uh, but there's also a lot of unheralded idiosyncratic businesses which don't get the same amount of attention. You know, I think about the success of certain Western spirits companies like Pernod, mm. or alternatively, L'Oreal, navigating the whole omnichannel environment of, of China. I guess the question is, are there broad characteristics shared by successful multinational companies in China? So very different categories, very different segments, but are, if I have to generalize, I would like to say yes, uh, but then uh, the detail is always, uh, the devil is always in the detail. One is amazing products. Second is ability to grow with the customer, to offer what customer want. Some uh, sort of business, for example, the luxury goods, that's what I call they are in the supply led industries 
what you can produce decide the total industry you know dynamic because customers just are happy to see what are being offered by the European luxury goods was the Chinese luxury goods business still uh, at probably infancy stage and how things will evolve in the future we don't know but if we look at the more affordable item the consumer products like start with something shampoo right um, long long time ago I mean two or three decades ago at one point it was supply led as well but now it's more consumer led um, there's some exception like phone telephone is a different story it was consumer led and then later on become supply led when it's when there's big technology breakthrough but um, compared to this one is the amazing product and secondly is when the industry move from supply led to consumer led can the company grow and change with the with the development of the consumers uh, some company could some some company could not uh, but actually many companies could in China and what happened when we go to the consumer-led industry stage, you will see a lot of local competitors and they are doing really well. So when, when an industry, consumer product industry or the food business uh, are in that consumer-led stage, then I would always focus on three calls. All three calls are not directly on your PNL. But if companies, particularly the multinational, if they cannot control all three costs, then we know what's the result. One cost is communication cost. Second cost is decision-making cost. Third cost is the cost of making mistakes. When a company is too big, then the communication cost is not small. And when a company run, if they make the decision from far, far, far away, and that's not enough attention towards the local competition, it becomes a problem. So the communication cost, decision-making cost, then the cost of mistakes, all are very high. It becomes really a big problem. But even for a company that is completely based in China, you still have to look at these three costs because China is the big country, it's a big market. Um, and, and I would say some, some companies can do it better than the other. And, and I, I see some multinationals say, oh, you know, there's sort of preference towards the domestic product or not. I really think that kind of thinking just oversimplify things because it's very easy to bring the cultural difference or the preference into the, uh, into the, the, the picture. But in reality, if you grow with the customer, if you offer what they really are passionate about, what they really want, and you can be part of the community, customers are very sophisticated in China right now, uh, particularly in tier one, tier two city. There might be some regional small, small area that's not so sophisticated, not so sophisticated but it's very small. Uh, I would say in general, customers are very sophisticated. I recall you telling me years ago that the best way to fail in China is copying what works in the United States. That's sort of what you're alluding to? <laughs> That's correct. The best way to fail in China is copy your successful model in United States or Europe and then 
have a impose it on and China. impose yeah. into the Chinese market. That's the guaranteed way to fail. So don't do it. For very simple reason, you know, the legal setting is different, the market setting is different, the logistics setting is different, your customers are different. Why in the world could you just replicate what were in US and Europe and then expect it to work in China? The mix is not right. The formula is not right. I mean, we, we all can learn many good things from around the world, from, from Southeast Asia, from Africa, everywhere. And then we, 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 we adjust and then, and then we test it with the customer and we listen to the customer what work, what doesn't work, and then, and then we change and then make it work there. That's, that's the only way. So coming back to the restaurant industry, unlike some of the, the other industries we touched upon, it's much more operationally intensive. Right? Every store is a manufacturer of sorts. Yeah. What do you think are the unique requirements for success, both for foreign restaurant competitors and, and then, of course, the local chains? Oh, um, really good question. First is the credibility about food safety. Without that, you know, you, you're building your business on, on sand. And that credibility is very, very hard to earn. And at some point... And very easy to lose. Yes. It only takes one small incident to lose that. Uh, but every successful, well-established company in restaurant industry probably would have to go through that stage and challenge and learn how to manage the PR crisis, how to take that challenge into opportunity to further enhance your internal capability in protecting food safety and also protect the company and also earn the trust from the customer again. I mean, one food safety incident could destroy 20, 30, 40% of the business overnight. Um, but once you earn it, customers, they really appreciate it. You, you might still make mistakes, but customer will know that you you have bottom line. Uh, the bottom line is there is is one incident is not system wise. So that's first. Second is very strong operation team uh, because at the end of the day, no matter how amazing the strategy are, without the strong operation team. People who work in a store day in and day out, nothing will happen. Whatever beautiful decision made by their headquarters won't, won't happen. It just won't happen. Uh, so that operation team, I would like to believe that it could easily take 10 years or 20 years to build. Um, and any successful restaurant industry need to build their operation capabilities and build the pipeline for talent internally. Without the ability to build internal talent, it's not very sustainable. So that's the second. Third is non-stop innovations, particularly in food, because Chinese customers love food, but then they are also so demanding about food. Um, and I believe and I encourage uh, whoever in the industry just to keep innovating. It's not only about Western food or Chinese food, it's about good food. You know, in, 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 
in many of these restaurant um, companies, they even have the regional menu. Other than the national menu, every, the, the, the food that everybody can have in the entire country, um, the local menu. And the local menu, particularly the breakfast item, these can be food that local people have been enjoying for 100 years, 200 years, or maybe 1,000 years. And why this is so important? Because if we think about it, when it comes to food, we are not very adventurous for the breakfast. We can have the same breakfast every day. We become more adventurous for lunch, but it's, it's, you know, lunch is very functional, fast, convenient, affordable. We become very adventurous with dinner, anything goes. So for the food that companies offer for the breakfast, actually the best strategy is just to go to the local taste, uh, sell food that sell the breakfast food that has been popular for a thousand years or a hundred years. You cannot go wrong because you can't change the habit anyway because that food habit for your breakfast is actually determined by your mother when you're a kid, not by any company right now. So once you understand the inside, then you, you will understand why it's so important to go local and to embrace the local, local flavor. And of course, you, you need to take the challenge that whatever the local food you produce in your restaurant need to be as good as the local, if not better, with the plus side of food safety compared to the street food, right? Uh, you have to pass the local people test. Then if you're good enough, then you can hopefully bring that food to other provinces, other cities in China and make it even bigger. Um, anyway, it's, it's a lot of hard work, but for people like myself, I absolutely love food, I think. You know, when you have good food, it's um, Chinese called 天人合一, heaven and human are together at the same time. Because 民以食为天, what is heaven for normal people? Good food is heaven for normal people. <laughs> uh, moving on to technology. You know, I think another surprising difference for those who haven't spent much time in China or have never been to China before is the sort of deep penetration into consumers' life, and perhaps I would say the unparalleled competitive fight that goes on in China. You know, we're still stuck with Amazon that looks about the same after 25 years, uh, Google and Facebook, but in China there's enormous amount of innovation that comes because of, of competition. You know, racing and its whole ecosystem, Douyin, which is now going global with TikTok, uh, we don't have one e-commerce company in China. We have multiple fighting over the growing GMV, VPOW. So how has this kind of digital innovation, you know, whether it's payments or communications through ads, um, loyalty, this sort of thing, how has this evolved in the restaurant India, industry in China? Um, and how do you think the future looks in terms of the importance of technology, uh, not just on the consumer side of the business, but also on the operational side of the business? Um, I mean, the technology play cannot be more important. And when I start to work on the investment of technology, I, I remember I share with my team that this is a strategic move that is no regret move. In fact, I often think, you know, you have this highlight RMG, right? Yeah. 
resilience, moat. Uh, growth, and then strategic oh, moat. Okay. Resilience, growth, moat. I think yes. you should add a T to it, right? Maybe that's the fourth element. <laughs> I'll put the technology into the resilience and growth. Mm -hmm. or Well, actually, we'll put it in a uh, in all the, of them, the strategic moat, yeah. yes. It, it, it cannot be emphasized even more. It's absolutely no regret move. And I am very grateful. I'll come to the impact of the restaurant industry later. I am very grateful that China still over one thing that that we don't necessarily think about it, but but we absolutely benefit from it is the number and the cost of engineers. Because I spent ten years in UK, and even ten years ago, a, 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 a engineer who can do the coding for you will cost. 2,000 pounds easily. I don't know what's cost in US right now. Everything's so expensive in the US. Um, but today, I mean, today it's still the, the case that you, 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 you can hire an uh, engineer for 2,000, maybe 2,500 or 3,000 pounds in the UK. But in China, you can get a really good one for 2,000 maybe. I mean, the cost difference is so big. So it allowed restaurant companies to invest so much into technology. So uh, that is just something that I'm very grateful. Secondly, I'm very grateful customers are very open-minded. I mean, I feel bad for my mom, my dad, who struggle to really keep up with the technology change. But most of the customers are so open-minded and, and very well educated too, to embrace the new technology. Then come to the restaurant industry, we deploy technology in, in many, many, many different ways. But if I dial the time back to seven, eight years ago, the starting point actually was the customer facing bit, is the loyalty, is the, is the marketing, is the digital payment, all that bit. Uh, to to simplify the operational complexity and cost uh, when it comes to customer facing. And then later on, we extend that. I mean, this is like quite, I won't say common, but it's really happening in the industry. Then the digitization happened uh, for the production of food, uh, restaurant operation, and then all the way to supply chain. So you can imagine right now when customer come to a, a, a restaurant, um, you know, sort of with the good technology background. Uh, before they walk into the restaurant, there's already LBS technology, location-based technology, to to have some special promotion for that particular customer before they walk in. And then the customer also would do huge amount of digital ordering, particularly for breakfast. You know, the insight is. When when would the customer order their breakfast? Before they come to the store and pick up the breakfast, they usually order it when they wake up, before they brush their teeth. They order it and they will specify what time it is for them to come pick it up and then they come pick it up. And then and then once they in the store, the payment is all done. There's no payment, right? The payment is done when they do the digital ordering. But then the, the staff would take the order from the computer system and then they will prepare food. And actually, the system, the digitization can be good enough that with the sales number over many years, you can predict what do you need to prepare before certain hours. 
um, and and for dining business, uh, they they can integrate the dining order and delivery order, and then decide the production schedule. Which in high end restaurant, you will have someone who's very capable to decide the order, right? You want the food to arrive at the same time, but in in a high sort of a restaurant company in China with the with the digitization, that's all done by machine. There's no human involved. And then what about the inventory? The inventory in the past, you have to do the stock take, you know, first in, first out. Right now, no need. You know, it, it, it's, it's all with the scanner. You bring the stock out, it's scanned, and the system will have, you know, automatically. automatically. And there's no need to do the ordering of the inventory either because the system will push the right amount of all the, the, the ingredient into the store. Um, and then, so you can imagine then the process continue all the way to the logistics center with the supplier to minimize the food waste. Because I am very big on the food waste because I mean, we can of course challenge ourselves to grow more food, but in reality, company, uh, uh, industries in countries where logistics system is not so efficient, the percentage of food waste in the process outrageously high. And there's so much for restaurant company, once we have this technology to absolutely minimize the food waste. And I certainly focus on that because it's not only about cost to the shareholder, it's just the right thing to do. Um, maybe we move on to context, just given limitations on time. The recovery of China post-pandemic removal of the mobility restrictions has been, you know, we our team was in Shanghai last week, sort of mixed, perhaps even disappointing to many observers. W what are your observations about the macroeconomic challenges and opportunities today? Um, well, first of all, take a step back. We sometimes forgot during quarter one, China still have COVID and the recovery really does take time. Uh, we still see um, the concern in people's mind, the consumer's mind, and, and people are more careful with their spending. When it comes to the macro implication, um, I mean, we are living at very, very uncertain time and nobody has the, you know, the crystal ball to tell what is to come. Uh, but what companies or restaurant industry could do is to, to to change, to be agile, to over what customer want. And customer want right now is very good value for money. Um, and that's something not too wrong either. You see that in Europe, you see that in many countries. So as a, uh, so there are always many competitors. The, the com competition or the market is always uncertain, but what companies can do, restaurant company can do, is we continue to build the fundamental capabilities in food innovation, in supply chain, in operation, in marketing skill. So that's sort of one of our views as well, which is um, China at present has a number of challenges. Um, but nevertheless, we did not discount that within the context of perhaps even a slower growing economy in China, there are significant opportunities. I mean, it's a very large market. Innovation is always the, the way to go. For example, right now, we also have another co concern is that, 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 that there's not enough uh, birth of babies for the country. Um, so 
what some companies, uh, restaurant companies are doing. Well, we start to market to the pets. <laughs> the pet's toy, the pet's home, all sorts of stuff related, all sorts of marketing things related to pets are doing really well. And in restaurant company, you can start to see some industry player or leaders, you know, they convert their store to be more pet friendly. So you see the bowl of water, you see a little place to, to, put, to, to have your dog next to it. It's okay, there's always some opportunities um, in such big, gigantic, you know, market. Um, I would like to believe that, you know, innovation and, and particularly really big innovation happen because we, we are pushed to, we have to. It's tough, but, but it just, uh, just give us that extra challenge to be more innovative and and I, someone clever said, great companies are always the children of the winter. And I think we will see some really great companies coming out of this winter. Well, we're entirely out of time. Uh, thank you, Joy. Thank Thanks you. for your time this morning. Thank you. You've been listening to Invesco's Greater Possibilities podcast. The opinions expressed are those of the speakers and are based on current market conditions as of May 30th, 2023, and are subject to change without notice. These opinions may differ from those of other Invesco investment professionals. This does not constitute a recommendation of any investment strategy or product for a particular investor. Investors should consult a financial professional before making any investment decisions. Should this contain any forward-looking statements, understand they are not guarantees of future results. They involve risks, uncertainties, and assumptions. There can be no assurance that actual results will not differ materially from expectations. All investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Discussions of specific companies are for illustrative purposes only and should not be considered buy-sell recommendations. All data sourced to Invesco unless otherwise noted. Not a deposit, not FDIC insured, not guaranteed by the bank, may lose value, not insured by any federal government agency. In general, stock values fluctuate, sometimes widely in response to activities specific to the company, as well as general market, economic, and political conditions. The risks of investing in securities of foreign issuers, including emerging market issuers, can include fluctuations in foreign currencies, political and economic instability, and foreign taxation issues. Investments in companies located or operating in Greater China are subject to the following risks. Nationalization, expropriation or confiscation of property, difficulty in obtaining and or enforcing judgments, alteration or discontinuation of economic reforms, military conflicts, and China's dependency on the economies of other Asian countries, many of which are developing countries. Many products and services offered in technology-related industries are subject to rapid obsolescence, which may lower the value of the issuers. The Greater Possibilities Podcast is brought to you by Invesco Distributors, Inc.